Ezekiel, who on earth is he? Well, this evening we're going to consider the man, his times, his message and his God as an introduction to this Old Testament book. Uh, those of you who still have a Bible that is print on paper, even if your Bible is quite old, you might find that the pages of Ezekiel are still in quite good condition <laughs> compared to some others. Maybe these are some pages in your Bible that haven't seen quite so much use as others. When you remember that Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, that all of it is profitable, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, then it's often to our great shame that we don't give more time and effort in discovering the treasures that God has for us across the whole canon of Scripture. It must surely be grievous to God if we keep ourselves limited to only certain sections of the Bible and dismiss other parts because we think they're really of no practical use or helpfulness. Some are more difficult than others, that I'll concede. But to judge them as being of no help, well, that's actually to stand in disagreement to what God says of his own word in those words that Paul gave to Timothy. The truth is there are many wonderful lessons and helps in the book of Ezekiel. And I trust that we'll find it to be of great benefit to us as we go through it. Now, it's a very large book. It's got 48 chapters. I'm not going to be going through it verse by verse. But what I do want us to do is make sure that we get from it all of its key themes and lessons and helps. That we get all the big picture that we retrieve from this part of God's word. That which will indeed help to equip us for every good work. Just as God says. So, three headings this evening. The first, the man and his times. Perhaps you, like Ezekiel, have sometimes discovered that life hasn't quite turned out the way you thought it would. At the age of 30, Ezekiel should just have completed his five-year apprenticeship so that he can follow in his father's footsteps and serve as a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. But instead, he finds himself 500 miles away in Babylon. And God is appointing him to be his spokesman to the people of Judah who are in exile. How on earth did Ezekiel find himself there? Well, a little bit of history. After the death of King Solomon, the one who was the son of King David, there were bitter 
political tensions and rivalries for the throne in Israel. And it led to a great division within Israel. Uh, it was a north-south divide. It always seems to be a north-south divide in countries. Well, it was in Israel. And uh, the year was, we think, probably about 931 B.C., nearly a thousand years before Christ. And two distinct kingdoms were established, each with their own succession of kings. Now, perhaps this little table may be of help. Um, if you're not familiar with Old Testament history, hopefully the print is not so small that you can't read it. Well, in the south of Israel, geographically, two of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, were abandoned by the other 10. And that left this southern kingdom. They took the name of Judah because that was the larger of the two tribes. Judah was the tribe from which the Lord Jesus Christ was to be born. They remained based in Jerusalem in the south, whilst the other 10 settled in the north in Samaria. The other 10 retained the name of Israel. So now you have kings of Israel and kings of Judah. And that situation continued for approximately 200 years until the rise of the Assyrian Empire to the northeast. And the Assyrian Empire conquered and ransacked northern Israel in 722 BC. And from that moment onward, the identity of those ten tribes was lost forever. Over the next hundred years, the dominance of Assyria began to wane. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Only the word of the Lord endures forever. Assyria was on the decrease. And over in the east, in modern-day Iraq, Babylon was coming to the ascendancy. Babylon's king was Nebuchadnezzar, and he rapidly expanded his kingdom westwards. At first, Judah became what's called a vassal state. They were permitted to retain some identity and some independency, but nevertheless, they were very, very firmly under Nebuchadnezzar's thumb. A little bit like the situation that we find in the New Testament, where Palestine is under Roman occupation with Herod as a puppet king, similar in Old Testament days. And Judah's king decided he would try to rebel against Babylon, not a smart idea, and Nebuchadnezzar enforced a series of three deportations from Jerusalem to Babylon over a period of 20 years, starting in 605 BC, till 586 and on the last of those occasions Jerusalem was besieged and attacked and left pretty much in ruins now it's during that same period in their history that Jeremiah you'll have heard of him he was ministering to God's people in Jerusalem it was in the first of those three deportations that Daniel went to Babylon you've heard of him and his three friends and 
the stories about the lion's den and the fiery furnace and so on, all occurring at this same time. Ezekiel was amongst the second group deported into Babylon in 597 BC. And so Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah, contemporary of Daniel, may well have met him and known him. Almost certainly he did. The 30th year, which is mentioned in the opening verse of Ezekiel, is widely accepted by Bible scholars as being a reference to Ezekiel's age. And that would mean that he was 25 years old when he was taken to Babylon, just about to begin his five-year apprenticeship, ready to serve as a priest. All that went to pot and he was shipped off to Babylon at the age of 25. So all through his youth, he's been witnessing the gradual demise of Judah. And so Ezekiel is introduced to us in verse 1 as a Jew in exile in Babylon. A man being held captive far from home. A man who is from a priestly family, verse 3, and who therefore qualifies to serve as a priest. They did that from the age of 30. And a man to whom God's word came in a very specific way. God had a very particular plan for this man. The word of the Lord came expressly, verse 3, to Ezekiel, the priest. And so Ezekiel's going to have a very special place in God's purposes for the Lord's people who find themselves in captivity in Babylon. God has not abandoned his people, even though the reason that they're in Babylon is because of God's judgment upon them. And God's going to use Ezekiel to speak to them as his prophet. You'll find Ezekiel in situations that you can relate to. You'll find Ezekiel facing difficulties which will strike a chord with you. And you'll hear from Ezekiel things that you need to hear, even today. Well, that's the man and his times. What about the man and his message? Well, the opening verses of chapter 2 make clear God's personal commission for Ezekiel. Now, we read the first verse. Let's just read on a little bit from chapter 2 at verse 1. God speaking to him, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Then the spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet and I heard him who spoke to me. And he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. For they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious people, yet they will know that a prophet 
has been among them, they'll be without excuse, even if they choose not to hear. In our New King James Version of the Bible, I didn't check in any others, but the, the, uh, the figures I'm sure will be very, very similar, if not the same. In the New King James, in the Old Testament, the words, thus says the Lord, can be found 418 times throughout the Old Testament. 127 of those, that's more than a quarter, are found just in the book of Ezekiel. We know that the whole Bible is God's word. And whenever you read it, you should, as Thomas Watson, the Puritan said, you should be thinking in every line you read that God is speaking to you. Now, if you need to be reminded of that, you're going to find 127 reminders in Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord, this is God speaking through his prophet. Now, you might think that as what Ezekiel has to say is going to be directed to God's own people, that his task would be fairly straightforward. But that's just not the case. Because, you see, being prepared to give the preacher a hearing is one thing. Listening to him is quite another thing. Listening to God's word. Really listening. That means to be eager, to be anxious to know what God is saying and what it means for me and what difference will this make what difference should this make what new thing is there for me to learn what change does that require in me how does this take me deeper into God? How does this encourage me to keep on? Is it, quite rightly, rebuking me? How does it speak of Christ? How is it for you every time you come to church on a Sunday? Do you just give the preacher a hearing in the hope that he has what it takes to keep you awake. In the hope that he has what it takes to keep you interested. Maybe even entertain you. Or are you listening for God's voice in every line? Most of the people that Ezekiel is going to speak to are not going to listen like that. It's going to be hard work for him. Yet, in Ezekiel's very name, there is hope and there is encouragement. Because God is going to give him a difficult task. We learn later in chapter 29 that Ezekiel has this ministry for at least 27 years. And he faithfully fulfills it. And his name means... God strengthens. 
and he's going to need every ounce of that strength that God can give him if he's to remain faithful in the ministry that God has given to him. He's going to be ministering 27 years. That's getting close to half of their whole time in exile. But we'll see in Ezekiel a man who unflinchingly and without hesitation or murmuring gives himself to God's will and purposes. And the topics addressed by Ezekiel reflect the main thrust of the whole Bible. That shouldn't come as a surprise to us, should it? The first is that sin is bigger and more serious than you or I ever care to acknowledge or admit. Perhaps as we go through this, you might find yourself tempted to think, Ezekiel, why so much about sin? Surely making the sins of God's people, surely you're making it too much of an issue. It's grace and mercy that we want to hear about. It's love and compassion that we want to hear you speak about. You know, Satan must be delighted when he hears people say that they have tired of hearing about sin. When people think little of sin, Satan must be rejoicing. When people tire of being reminded about sin, they're moving their soul into very dangerous territory. Because God's grace is only amazing when you remember just how much of a wretch you were in your sin. That's what makes God's grace so amazing. That saved a wretch like me. God's compassion and mercy is of an order far beyond any degree of compassion or mercy that you or I are ever capable of. But you will only ever recognize the depth of God's compassion and mercy when you understand the depth to which you have sunk in your sinfulness. Do you remember the woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee? The one who washed Christ's feet with her tears and dried them with her hair and then poured expensive perfume over them to anoint him. And everyone in that room except Jesus were totally bemused by what she was doing and why. And Jesus explained, she loves me so very much. Why'd you say that, Jesus? Because she knows just how much she's been forgiven. Perhaps one of the reasons why Christians don't always love Christ as much as they should, perhaps one of the reasons why Christians don't always obey Christ as willingly as they should, is because they think too little of their sin and therefore they think too little of their saviour. 
if sin is only a small thing, I only need a small saviour. But if sin is as big as the Bible says it is, I need a very big saviour. And praise God he sent one. It's not that thoughts of our sin should consume and overwhelm us to the point where we think of nothing else. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. Our old sins should not haunt us and stifle us and paralyze us. But the Apostle Paul never forgot or allowed himself to forget just how unworthy he had been of God's grace and forgiveness, let alone that he should become an apostle. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Then, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his letters, Paul constantly reminds believers of the extent and the depth and the depravity of the sin from which they've been saved. To remind them how great a salvation they have known and how great a saviour they have. So Christian friends never tire of being reminded of the depth of sin and of just how grievous it is to a holy God in order that it may drive you again and again and closer and closer to the cross of Christ in a new and fresh appreciation for what he did for you there. What we also see in Ezekiel, though, is that despite the entrenched position and rebellion that the people of God are in, God, even though he burns hot in his anger against them, he's also kind. He's tender-hearted. He's unbelievably patient. And he gives promises of reconciliation and of restoration concluding right at the end with a picture of a glorious city which represents all the people of God. And the name of this city? The Lord is there. The Lord is there with his people. That's how it ends. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord is with his people. What was one of the names of Christ? Emmanuel, God with us. Well, that's something of the man, something of his message. Now, in closing, let's consider the God who appoints him. The God who appoints him. Now, in this final point, we turn to this amazing vision that God gave to Ezekiel in chapter 1. This marvellous, bizarre, strange language. Now we find here language which reminds us of some of the imagery that we can find in the Revelation right at the end of the New Testament and elsewhere in the Bible too. The thing to remember is that these images that Ezekiel saw, they are not literal, physical items and objects. They're images, they're pictures. They're being given to Ezekiel as illustrative of spiritual truths and realities. They're not literal wheels 
It's a vision. It's a picture to help Ezekiel know something that he needs to know for his own encouragement. The important thing, again, very much similar to the book of Revelation, the important thing is not to worry too much about all the fine little details, but to see the big picture, to see the important truth that God is presenting to Ezekiel in this image. We have a picture here of God in his glory, in his power, in his majesty, and in his holiness. It begins with a whirlwind from the north. Many of Israel's main enemies came from the north. Cloud mixed with fire, brightness, lightning. Like a great storm coming. On the one hand, this storm is God's judgment against the people of Judah. That's why they're in in exile in Babylon. Because of their rebellion. God punishes sin. And then in the midst of this whirlwind, there are these four living creatures, echoes again of Revelation. They have four faces, four wings, they've got legs. Later on in his book, he'll describe them as being cherubim. Their faces are representative of a man, a lion, an ox, an eagle. Notice the language, the the likeness of their faces. They had the likeness of, as it were, these are just these images that God is bringing to Ezekiel and this is him trying to explain in words the fabulous things that he's seen in this image. There's the wisdom and reason of man. There's the lion, the chief of all the beasts, a symbol of strength and courage and royalty and loyalty. The chief and most valuable of all domesticated animals, the ox, and also frequently employed in ancient cultures as a symbol of fertility and divinity. The eagle, the strongest and most majestic of all the birds, with its keen sight, its ability to swoop upon its prey. And all this pictured as sitting atop these interlocking chariot-like wheels, enabling this thing to move in any direction at all without the faces needing to turn. These images are pictorial representations of the all-seeing, all-knowing, ever-present, mighty God moving across the face of the earth. Wherever he pleases to go, he is there. Nothing can escape him. Nothing is beyond his reach. Nowhere is out of his presence. God is everywhere. And then the image moves on and culminates with a vision of a throne room High above all of these things, the noise of many waters, again echoes of revelation, and of an army. Here is the Lord God and all his heavenly host. And in the midst of the brightness and splendor is the image as of a man, with fire, brightness, a rainbow. Here is Christ portrayed 
in the Old Testament. The image as of a man. Here is Christ coming to his people. Why am I saying so little about all of these finer points of detail in this vision? Well, I really don't think we need to try and fixate ourselves upon all of these little details and trying to try to give an explanation to every tiny little thing. In some ways, perhaps a little bit similar to the parables that Jesus told. In some of those stories that he told, the individual points of detail aren't necessarily that important in themselves. They are just there because they form part of the big story that Jesus wants you to see and grasp and understand. And all of these little details all have their part in, pro in projecting this big picture of God who hasn't forgotten or abandoned his people in Babylon and coming to them. And here is an image of the person and the presence of God and of Christ for his people in that situation. God is coming in judgment of his people. He comes in holiness and in purity and in majesty. But whenever God comes in judgment, he also comes with the means of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ is the judge of all the world, but he's the saviour too. God's judgment always brings with it grace and mercy. We may be forgiven our sins. The people of Judah in captivity in Babylon may be forgiven their sins too. And God comes to them and this, this image just gives us this picture of awesome strength and might and holiness and majesty. Nothing can escape him. The one who's in complete authority over all things and none can stay his hand. He moves in the earth as he wills, according to his own purposes, sovereign over all things. This is the God who Ezekiel is seeing in this vision. But God makes himself manifest through Christ. We cannot look upon God and live but God, in his great mercy, has given us Christ that we may look upon Christ and see God in Christ. So it's through Christ that we may see God. And Ezekiel sees this figure as of a man. Can only be speaking of Christ. It's in Christ that we have hope. It's in Christ that Ezekiel has hope. And that is what is brought before Ezekiel in this vision. God has not abandoned them in their sins. He hasn't cast them off into Babylon and forgotten them and forsaken them. He's with them. He's with them in the person of Christ. And in the person of Christ, there is still hope. This is the Christ who called Ezekiel. This is... This is Christ who's appointing Ezekiel to be his prophet. This is Christ who speaks as surely in the Old Testament as he does in the New. Here he is, that eternal word, who was God and who is God. And what does Ezekiel do? 
What did Isaiah do when God gave him a vision of himself? What will the Apostle John do when Christ gives him his vision in the Revelation? What do all three of those men have in common? They fall down on their faces. There is no other adequate response when you are confronted by the living God but to fall down before him. Because he is the one who is holy, holy, holy. Lord, God, Almighty. In the Bible, God shows us the enormity of our sin. He shows us the severity and the certainty of his judgment, which he will bring in his justice, in his truth, in his holiness and in his righteousness. But he also shows us that he is kind and he's merciful and he's gracious and he's full of compassion. And all through the Bible, he shows us Christ in whom there is hope. Is he your hope? He was the hope of Ezekiel. But remember this. There's another judgment coming when Christ will appear once more. But on that appearance, God's time of grace will have come to an end. His offer of salvation will have expired. What must I do? You need to turn to him in your sin. You need to turn to him from your sin. Turn to him today while still there is grace and mercy. Fall down before him. Acknowledge him as Ezekiel did then. Own him today as Ezekiel did then as your saviour, as your God and as your king.